Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Austin. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to share a, a story with you. I told my wife I hadn't even shared this story with, and I don't even know if my mom really uh, remembers this, but I was uh, 17 years old, junior in high school, um, and I had been driving, but I also played uh, club soccer, and our soccer practices happened um, at the same time um, as our youth group, and so I told my pastor that I'd be late. Um, and so as I was driving uh, to church, I get there. We had already had our like opening game. We had already uh, had our worship, and, he, and our youth pastor had given the message. I know some of you teens right now are like, "That's exact." I would just love to like miss the worship, and I'm just, but right or to miss like what the youth pastor has to say. Um, classic, heard that all the time. But and so we had small group after that, and so I went into the our designated room where we have a small group, and it's back in the back corner of the church uh, in one of the children's room. And when I got in there, um, all that I saw were clothes on the chairs in open book, open Bibles everywhere. So I go check a couple other small group rooms, same thing. I check our worship area, nobody. Uh, I'm starting to panic a little bit. I had a cell phone at that time, right? I got a cell phone when I started driving. Uh, it was like that exchange you need to know uh, and be careful at all times. So I called um, some of my friends. Nobody answered. Called my parents. They didn't answer. Uh, so I'm like, uh, anxiety's a little coming crashing up hard. And so I decided I'm going to go get in my car and I am going to search out for all the good Christians that I know. Because I have been left behind. And I'm freaking out a little bit. And so as I go to my car, all of a sudden, um, as I get there, all of our youth group jumps out from like uh, hiding behind this wall and scare me to death. So two things happen in that moment. I am both fully relieved and so fully upset. And I do what any good 17-year-old does. And your parents are like, "Uh uh-huh, I left. (laughs) I got in my car, whipped it out, wheels, tires, and I was gone. I was mad because I felt I left behind. And this morning we're talking about a bumper sticker that kind of talks about this. It says this, and it's up on the screen. Warning. I don't know if you've seen this. Super popular in the 90s. Oh, did I just date myself? Um, (laughs) Warning. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Think about that for a second. How scary is this? This was made famous by um, a book series and movie series called Left Behind. And that the reality of this, some of y'all are shaking your head like, uh-huh. And some kids, like, if you're a little bit older, you haven't seen it yet, but you probably shouldn't. It's terrible. Um, it's classic all Christian movies are. Um, did I say that out loud? Um, there's this reality that um, it kind of says, like, all of a sudden that Jesus is about to return and then everybody just vanishes. Like, in cars, in planes, in homes, at dinner tables, and then the people are left behind. And all of a sudden, can you imagine, like, <laughs> like myself as a good boy, a southern Christian kid that gone to church every day, gone to youth group, and all of a sudden you felt like you were left behind? Oof. Oh, man, it was uh, uh, quite an experience. But the thing that about this we want to talk about is that uh, our main point, our big idea that we're going to talk about this morning, um, when we talk about this, and maybe some of you are thinking right now, maybe your, your most encouragement that you're going to take away from this is that you should probably, if you, like, if you believe this is going to happen, you should start driving really safe and maybe under the speed limit. And maybe like when you hear the trumpet sounds, please pull the e-brake before you vanish. For the sake of the others that are left behind, please. 
Do that for me, especially if you're in my neighborhood. Um, no, we're going to talk about this big idea that our eschatology, which eschatology is it's a big word for how things end. Our eschatology should inform our incarnation. Another big church word um, is how we live. Like Jesus was incarnate. He came and was made flesh. And so really, this idea to kind of put it in a, a little simpler terms is that how it all ends should inform how you live. We're not going to be up here today like, hey, are you a pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial? Are you? I'm not going to answer those questions. Uh, I'm going to talk about um, in Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about a series of eschatological parables, that these moments should inform how we live. So if you have your Bible in front of you or on a device, that's great too. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 31. I love looking at it uh, together. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV, and so, um, but if you're reading out of a different one, that's okay. So join me in, in reading God's Word. It said, when the Son of Man comes, Jesus is described as the Son of Man, in all of his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all of the nations will be gathered up before him, and he will separate the people from one another, as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and he will put the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take the inheritance, the kingdom that has been prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you um, in, needing clothing and clothe you? And when did you see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Jesus will reply, I tell you, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed to eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and I gave, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He replied, truly I tell you that whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we... Um, we sit in this text. We sit in your word and we wonder, what in the world? Why, Jesus, you shared this story um, with your friends. And even probably in their confusion, God, we have confusion as well. And so, God, I pray that you will open our ears and our eyes to hear, to see, um, to open our minds um, to see something that maybe we didn't see before or know before. Or changes the way that we live right now. God, our time together here with you as always. God, we participate in this creation that you are doing in us. That you are making us new. So God, this morning, renew our hearts and our minds, our words, our actions. So that we might be more like you. We ask this in your name.
Amen. You know, this sounds, uh, I grew up in the South again. It's like, I think what I want to encourage you all, I don't know if you've heard of this, but country music has this thing that through it, like, write a song, like, live like you're dying. Like, or if you, or in movies, like, if you knew the end of what happened in your life, and you, how would you live differently? Right? Like, every one of those songs and those movies, they're, they're prevalent out there. This, it goes on this premise of, if you knew everything that was going to happen, how would you live right now? Would you live like you're dying every day? Would you ride a bull for eight seconds? Would you go uh, skydiving? I would never go skydiving. Don't ask me to go. I would not do it. Um, but Jesus right now is doing that. He's giving them a glimpse of, hey, this is, kind of, this is, this is a parable. This is a story of how these things are going to happen later. And so in his, he is telling them, he's a giving them a glimpse behind the curtain of what his ex, ex, eschatology looks like. But the thing that we are talking about, we talked about how um, our eschatology informs how we live. Klein Slagrass, uh, who's a professor at North Park and is a leading parable uh, a theologian, said this. He said, parables of the future are not about the future, but they are about the present. Jesus told this parable, this story, not so that they would just know the future, but they would know on how to reflect about the future and the way that they are living right now. In all of chapter 25, when he's going through all these parables of eschatology, it's not so that they will know the future and somehow go away like me with maybe some less anxiety and feeling like, hey, I got a good idea of what it looks like to be left behind, so maybe I won't. Right? This parable is never meant also to be a scare tactic. So like if this morning you um, have a little anxiety about what we're talking about, like in times, like, trust me, I did too. I remember multiple times of like just getting ready for bed or going to sleep and all of a sudden I have like this, because um, I'm a good Christian kid and went to, to church and this parable came up and these thoughts came up and all of a sudden I had a freak out moment, my own like personal panic attack. <laughs> right? You're in good company. But I want to assure you like, that this is not just about so you know and can freak out and scare attack it to get people or get you to come to Jesus. He didn't tell this. These are disciples who were already following him, and he was giving them a glimpse of what they were looking at. And it was more about, hey, let me give you a glimpse at the end so that when you look in the mirror and you see the reflection, you say, does that look like this? Like all the parables that Jesus talked about was a reflection of saying, hey, this is what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. Look in the mirror. Do you see the reflection? Does it reflect clearly like that? Or is there something else that doesn't look like real clear? And so this morning we're talking about this parable. It's not meant for us to say, okay, now we know the signs. Now we know what to prepare for. Now we know like um, things that we need to get ready for, have our like bomb shelters and all this stuff, whatever you kind of feel about those end time things. No, it's about the ability for followers to say, what does that inform on how I live right now? And could you imagine, could you imagine the disciples as they hear this going like us? Some people in Christians today are like, Jesus, what in the world are you saying? Like, you've said all these things about what the kingdom looks like and what it means to follow you. Are you saying—I wonder if the disciples are saying this, like some of us have said. Wait, is this parable—Jesus, are you telling the story that, um, that our doing or our works will save us? Like, anybody ever like, oh, man, when I get to this text, like, does that mean I have to just do a bunch of right things? Do I have to feed the hungry, the thirsty, clothe uh, the naked, right? Do I have to do all those things? 
Or are we still saved by grace, right? Jesus talks a lot about this, like the grace and faith that saves you. It's the blood of Jesus that's laid down for you that saves you. I wonder if the disciples are saying, man, I'm just a little confused, and maybe you are too. But hear what Jesus is saying, that this is not an introduction to a new ethic, Like, Jesus isn't introducing a new ethic. He is clarifying motives and identities. Like, what he's doing for the disciples is saying something, right? If you're learning something new and you don't quite, like, understand how it all fits together, what if somebody came to the other side and goes, this is how it all fits together? Now how does that inform how you are putting things and figuring the problems and questions of life out? Jesus is doing this for his disciples. Of saying, I'm not trying to bring you this whole new world, like ethic and moral that you have to live to. You're still saved by grace. That grace is a gift that we have received through forgiveness. And it started in its work and it will see it through to completion. But for Jesus and his disciples, this parable and parables on eschatology are about identity. And about motives. It's not about works over faith. So don't get confused and say, like, you walk away and, and call our leadership team and be like, hey, Austin's teaching some heresy. No, no, we're not talking about faith, works over faith. We're not talking about works righteousness. We're not talking about you can earn your salvation. No, no, no. What he's saying is that because of faith, because of faith, and that the apprenticing after Jesus and of Jesus, he is reminding them that it's not about what you believe in and of itself, but it's how you live because of what you believe. Right? He's saying to them, hey, disciples, I don't want you to be followers of me or claim to be followers of me in proclaiming only. Like, I don't want you in name only to be like, I am a follower of Jesus. But then when they look at this parable and they've been recorded and we look at it and say, man, we need followers of Jesus. Like, this is a litmus test for the rest of the world. Like, and the people heard it's like, man, do these disciples, followers of Jesus, apprentices of the way, the way of love, do they look like this? It's not, I mean, for, for, for us and for the world, this is not like, oh man, this is the key to unlocking how all things end. This is the key to unlocking is like what you believe. Is it enacting in your life? That because you've received a good gift, a gift that you don't deserve, you absolutely, and I utterly don't deserve. Every day I don't deserve it. But he gives it every day. He wakes me up every day. He says, your mercies are new. That gift of grace is new this morning, even though yesterday you did everything you do for me to take it back from you. Like that is good, good news. But as we get into this parable and we get into this bumper sticker, that their actions, Jesus says, your actions prove your faith. Like, I just wonder, church, if we could get back to this. If we could get back to this reality that, yes, you are saved utterly by grace. That it's the sacrifice of Jesus. But that gift that he gives you and that you know that you are saved, that you know that you have been washed by the blood, that when God looks on you, he sees his son Jesus, that you are clean, you are in relationship, you are sewn back together to him, that we say, because of that reality— that faith is an inward reality of my life. My desire, and Jesus' desire by in this text is to say, now I want that invisible reality to become visible. 
visible. And so we might say, like, well, what do we do? What does it actually look like to be visible? Well, it's a couple things. Please don't ever play a left-behind prank on me. I don't think my heart can handle two of them. If I come in on a Sunday morning and it's all closed, I'm, I might just... I might find a storm shelter from good Seattleites and just live there forever off your food. No, I think it's about repentance and obedience. It's about repentance and obedience. And I say that why? Like, why are you saying, like, Austin, it's about repentance and um, obedience? Well, I think repentance— for the first part, is that when Jesus looks to those on the right, like often we say like those are good, they fulfilled all the things of the law, and it makes us get this like contrasting, right? These are the ones that did everything right, and these are the ones that did everything wrong. But like, can we like break that, that cycle a little bit? Because I bet he looked at all those that were on the right and said, yes, you did these things, but probably you messed up as much as you did them right. Or maybe a little bit more. Like, you probably messed it up more than you got it right, but you started to get it right. Your aim every day was to get it right. And I know that that's true in my life. And when we talk about this time of part of repentance, the church talks about it in two ways. That really, I have messed it up consistently in sins of commission and omission. Like, those are two just big words to say. Commission and the things that I know that I should have done and I didn't do it. I know the standard of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a walk, a disciple of the way of love, and I chose not to do that. The other one is sins of omission, is that I didn't see, just like all the, the goats here, like, when did we see this? And I, things that I left undone, right? It's things that you didn't do right and the things that you left undone. You're like, mm, I'm just not going to do it. Like, I didn't catch it. I was just oblivious. The Holy Spirit saying, hey, like, this person came to your door or your neighbor came to your door and really needy and you just like that, right? Or you know, like, oh, something are going through something. I'm just not going to do it. It's that movement of sins of omission and commission. To say, really, even as the, probably the sheep on the right, to say, like, they too were probably in this consistent state of asking for forgiveness. To look at Jesus and say, man, Jesus, this gift of grace, I mess it up so often. I'm so sorry. I know I have done things that I shouldn't have done, and I left things undone. God, will you forgive me? Jesus, out of your grace and out of your mercy, will you forgive me? I'm so sorry. And that comes to a place of Jesus who then says, you know what, my blood is going to be the atonement for all of the things you've done wrong. And so to come to this posture of repentance is really important. And I think what in in the text is not to say that these people got it right 100% of the time. Nobody did it. Nobody did it but Jesus. You are in good company if you've messed up at least once. Awesome. And for the rest of you that are like me, that are like still counting on that little counter, and it's actually reset back to all zeros, you're with me, right? Like, uh, (laughs) I need more zeros. I need more numbers. Like, right? That's me. You're in good company. Because we're in this state of repentance, in this state of saying, like, Jesus, I understand the standard and the way of discipling me that you're asking me and calling me to live, and I've done it wrong so many times. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But in out of that, that not only are we taking like a posture of repentance, but we're also then taking the posture 
of obedience. Because this is really important. That in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this. In his, in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, his first teaching, he says this. Kind of like an eschatological preamble to this like text. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Like, that sets it up before you even get to there. He's already said this. So, like, you can't come to this and be like, oh, Jesus is teaching something new. He's already said it. That because it's not just about saying, man, Jesus, I've received your grace. I've washed you cleansed once. And so that at the end of my life, at the end of my life, as I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to call Austin, and I'm going to have him come to my side, and I'm going to confess everything that I've ever done so that I will be in a right state with God. It's not just about being in a state of repentance, but also in a state of obedience. It's not faith over works. It's not works over faith. It's faith and works. It's works that are made flesh. It's faith made flesh. It's love with flesh on. It's compassion. It's mercy with flesh on. See it this way. That Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. Say it this way. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships, then I'm a boast. But I do not have love, I gain nothing. That Jesus is saying in this text that it's not about so you know the end so that when it all comes, you can get right and make sure that you are just in a good state. It's about living this way of love that is all the way from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of the story. The beginning end is this way of love that God is moving to redeem and restore so that his people and followers may look different than the world around them and may preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in love. Because of what they believe. So my question as we uh, wrap up our time is, what would your life look like in the next 50 years? What would your life look like in the next 25 years? What would your life look like in the next 10 years? The next five years? What would your life look like in the next year if you Stead on this moment and placed a rock like we do, and sometimes you see the pillars of rocks as a monument saying, today, the next 50, 25, 10, 5, and this year, I will say yes to Jesus more often than I say no. In living this text out, that I will live from this moment out of the faith that I have received from Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection is grace, and from today, I will say yes. What would that look like? What would your relationships look like? Would they be stronger because you're committed to acts of love and kindness to those around you? Man, what if it wasn't the stranger, but just your neighbor or your kid or your spouse or your friend that you provided food, drink, clothing, visiting when they're sick? Because how many people in this last two years felt so alone and isolated, and those were Christians, and none of the Christians ever visited them? 
I heard that as a pastor. That was even uh, a declaration made on me. It has been six months and all you have done is walk into your own house, batten down the doors, and survive. True. Conviction noted. I'm sorry. What if? What would our neighbors look like or know us better if we were knowing of who they are and what they need, and we were there and willing to say yes to Jesus' movement and the Holy Spirit, saying, hey, could you just be in their presence more often? Could you invite them over for dinner? Man, cut, mow their lawn, but don't run over their sprinkler systems if they have one, right? What would strangers say if they looked up, and we looked at them, and they said, man, the Christians at PLCC, and I hope broader, but I only can speak of the church that we are part of here right now, said those people at PLCC, their faith is made flesh. That we don't wish that the homeless would just get out of our lives, but it would be an opportunity for us to love and to care. What would it look like that if your kids would have the confidence to live in a world where they are made smaller every, every day. That when their heart is sick and broken by the things that people have said about them and to them, or made them feel less because they can't get into this school, or they're not getting those grades, or they don't have those friends, or they didn't get on that team, and they came home to a place and say, I understand you're hurting, and let me in, be in physical proximity to you, and let me care and bind up the wounds and the lies that they have been told. What would our families look like? I'm speaking to myself. Instead of just getting them to act right know that they've been made right by Jesus. And what would our church community look like if we said that we would be loving? Not, and I, and I, and I heard this, I was challenged by this, not radically loving, but just ordinary hospitality and loving. Like, we're such at a deficit in the world on loving and compassion and mercy that what if we just did the norm? What if we did a C-plus job? If we were average? I know on the plateau, like, average is like a death sentence, right? You're like, if we're not excellent and on an A-plus, Lord, have mercy. But what if we were okay with just doing C-plus work in terms of compassion, mercy, and love? Like, Jesus is like, just be average, please. Like, I just need an average church. What would that do? I'm just asking and wondering. There might be no needs among us, or maybe just less. Because there are needs all around us, whether we say them or whether we keep them inside. What would it look like if Jesus was allowed to show up in your life and say through the Holy Spirit, hey, I just want you to walk the way of love, the thing that you believe in, like the me guy that you believe in, that I gave you this gift and it gives you new life. I'm wondering if you could just kind of share that with other people. And you're like, you know what? Sure. I don't really have time for that, but yes. Maybe that's a word for you. What would it look like for disciples who had life going on, but they were willing to say yes to the Holy Spirit and to minister in the way that was clearly evident right in 
front of them. What would it look like? I'm just asking that at the end, when you see everything that has happened, you know the way of grace, you know the way of love. What if maybe we were just a C-plus church? I just want to be average because average is so much better than just putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and hoping and praying that on your last day that Jesus' grace is good enough to save you. Not confidence in your work, but your confidence in the faith of one who gave it to you because your faith was real, tangible, applicable. Maybe the thing about us as followers of Jesus is that we struggle with being followers of Jesus It's because we pray a prayer and then nothing happens after that. In a world where division is running rampant, where people are in their factions, in their echo chambers of what they believe about how the world is and how it should be ran, what if Christians were able to walk into the same place, to be gathered up together and say, there's another way that I'm going to love you not based on what you believe is the same thing that I believe. But I'm willing to put myself in proximity to people that are not like me. Do you think all the people that needed clothing, thirsting, were in prison, believed the same thing? Like, if you're in prison, clearly you don't believe the same thing these disciples believed. Like, can we say that? But they were willing to be in proximity. Instead of going to places that people meet and match your beliefs, that we say as Pine Lake, there is room for all of us to be together in what we believe, and we believe that is the way of love. That is not extraordinary. That is an average church. Let's start as PLCC. Let's be an average church. Let's find and invite people who are on the margins into the center. Let's not say, like, we're going to go away and we're going to go into our margins and factions. But Jesus actually calls people to the middle and to the center. That it's not about what you believe. But it's reminding who he is, who you are, and who you belong to. This is what it means. So I pray that you know the end. And I hope it will inform how you live today. Let's pray. Father, I know that for some of us, um, we got lost the moment we started talking about the end times. God, I was a 16-year-old boy that was freaked out ever discussing this stuff. But God, my prayer is to find myself centered in the hope in the faith that says my God isn't just worried about how many people make it into that category of sheep but he's worried about me right now he's worried about you right now he's worried about this community in Sammamish and Issaquah in this region on the east side this city this state this nation this world he 
His eye is on the sparrow. His eye is on the sparrow, and God, your eye is on me. Would you take that faith, even for us, if it's as small as a mustard seed? If our faith looks like it is nothing. We put it, plant it, cultivate it, water it, and that as it grows, may we bear fruit. Fruit of the Spirit, peace, patience, joy, goodness, gentleness, self-control, love. That's all I want. It's all I want for myself and all I want for us as a church. God, it's easy, it's clear, it's what you called us to. And my prayer is that we would have the courage to walk out these doors into the world and live differently because of your grace and your mercy extended to us that it might be extended to one another. We ask this in your name. Amen.